Welcome to All About Agatha, the podcast dedicated to reading and ranking every single mystery novel written by the queen of crime, Dame Agatha Christie. I am Kemper Donovan, and on this episode, I am filling up some cracks in the foundation that Catherine Brobeck and I built for so many years, reviewing text after text written by Agatha Christie. We are not perfect, and on occasion, we missed some important material out there. Usually in the form of film and television adaptations of Christie texts that we simply didn't know existed, though we also failed to discuss an actual text as well. I will be addressing all of those cracks on this omnibus, this grab bag of an episode. I'm sure there will be more cracks to cover in episodes to come. So if after listening to this, you realize, hey, wait a second, you didn't talk about X because you know something else important that we failed to mention, I would love to hear from you. Email me at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. I will be referencing listener emails a lot in this episode because it was mainly through emails that I found out about some of these long lost television episodes and whatnot. And just to clarify, these are all English language adaptations that we missed. We know there are many, many non-English language adaptations that we have not discussed on this podcast and even in our bonus Patreon episodes, although we've discussed a few over there. Our purview when it comes to adaptations covered is limited to those in the English language, not from lack of interest, but just by way of a pragmatic constraint, (laughs) since there is so much material out there beyond what's available in the English language. So I just want to make that clear at the outset. And before I get into specific titles, I will just say that with one exception, all of the adaptations I'll be discussing on this episode are early adaptations. And these early adaptations are short and snappy. They focus on plot over visual aesthetics and even over character. But having just watched these early adaptations in quick succession, I've got to say they're really enjoyable. And in some ways, perhaps even preferable to the slower and more visually lavish adaptations that we're used to. The ones that flourished starting in the 80s through the 90s and now into the glorious 21st century. I have no doubt there are many more of those to come, but it was really nice to focus on some adaptations from long, long ago and see what they have to offer. So... With that in mind, let's dive into Lord Edgware Dies. And this will come as no surprise, but any of the titles I will be discussing on this episode, I am also going to be spoiling. So if you have not yet read Lord Edgware Dies, you are going to want to fast forward quite a bit, (laughs) actually, before I get to the next title under discussion. And just one note here, listeners, that I am splicing in after the fact. That's right. I'm making a correction to my correction episode. In the conversation to come about Lord Edward Dies, I refer to the actor who plays Poirot in Lord Edward Dies mainly as Trevor Austin. His name is, in fact, Austin Trevor. Yes, this is what happens when you have a first name for your last name. But as one who goes by Kemper Donovan, I don't think I really have much of a leg to stand on there. I just reverse the names. The fallibility that I just referred to is very much on display here in this episode. So forgive the confusion and just know that the actor's name is Mr. Austin Trevor. 
But I'm so thrilled to be able to talk a little bit about Lord Edgware Dies. It's been a while. Jane Wilkinson rears her empty, self-obsessed, murderous head once again. Catherine Brobeck's arch nemesis. So when Catherine and I covered Lord Edgware Dies all the way back in 2017, the very first film adaptation of Lord Edgware Dies, which was released just one year after the book was published, the film was released in 1934, the book came out in 1933, this film was not available to view on YouTube, and I am so excited to inform you that it is now available. You just have to go to YouTube and put Lord Edgware Dies into the search field, and it will come right up. This film is now viewable. We had not watched it when we covered the novel. I am now fresh off my own personal viewing. So let's talk about it. This is actually the third of three Poirot films released in the 1930s, starring Trevor Austin as Poirot. The film is just an hour and 15 minutes. Very, very snappy. Again, all these early adaptations, super fast. (laughs) Trevor Austin previously appeared in Alibi, in 1931. That was a film adaptation of a stage adaptation of The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. The stage adaptation was not written by Agatha Christie. Also in 1931, Trevor Austin appeared in Black Coffee, which was another film adaptation of a stage play, though in this case, the play was written by Agatha Christie. Black Coffee is the sole original Poirot play she ever wrote. And if you're wondering why Black Coffee was never covered on this podcast... I am happy to direct you to the podcast's Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha, or click on the link in the notes to this episode, because Catherine and I covered this play years ago on Patreon, along with all sorts of other extra goodies in the Christieverse. So have no fear, we have not neglected black coffee. Unfortunately, the Trevor Austin film versions of Alibi and Black Coffee are lost, We cannot watch those, but we can watch Lord Edgware Dies. And just a little background here. At this point, when Trevor Austin was playing Poirot, our favorite Belgian detective had already been played by Charles Lawton. He played Poirot in the stage play Alibi. And by Francis Sullivan, he played Poirot in the stage play For Black Coffee. So even though Trevor Austin is the first actor to portray Poirot on film, these other two men had already portrayed him on the stage. And both Lawton and Sullivan would go on to play important roles in Christie's life, by the way. Charles Lawton is perhaps most famous among Christie fans for starring in Billy Wilder's Witness for the Prosecution. Still my favorite Christie adaptation, or none. He played the role of the barrister Sir Wilfred Robarts, QC. And then Francis Sullivan's house, or more specifically his swimming pool, was used by Christie for the setting of her mid-career gem of a novel, The Hollow. Christie dedicated the book, quote, to Larry and Danae with apologies for using their swimming pool as the scene of a murder. And I'll just note that Francis L. Sullivan was known as Larry to his friends, which would make perfect sense if the L stood for Lawrence, but it actually stood for Loftus. (laughs) So it's a little strange that he was known as Larry to his friends, but he was. Anyway, Christie bemoaned the fact that these two men, Lawton and Sullivan, were both so large, whereas Poirot, as we all know, is a smaller man. So in a way, Trevor Austin fares better than Lawton and Sullivan did, because Trevor Austin is certainly very skinny. But he is also extremely tall, and he is easily the tallest man in this film. 
Furthermore, he's noticeably young. He was 37 in 1934 when he did Lord Edgeware Dies. And pair yourselves, listeners, he is not wearing a mustache of any sort in this movie. Shocking, I know. So when it comes to Poirot's appearance, it really took, I think, a long time for anyone to nail <laughs> what Christie had written on the page. And I know many of you would agree with me that David Suchet is just the only one who really has nailed it thus far. Albert Finney was doing his own thing. Peter Ustinov was doing his own thing. I appreciate both of them. But when it comes to the look of Poirot, I don't think anyone has ever come close to David Suchet. And Trevor Austin might be the furthest of them all. <laughs> so that was one of my big takeaways from watching this film. And it's funny, but the actor John Turnbull, who plays Inspector Jap in this movie, he is more of a traditional Poirot in terms of body type. He's shorter and rounder. And whenever Poirot, Hastings, and Jap appeared on screen, it was so strange for Poirot to be the tallest with Hastings in the middle and then Jap appearing rather teeny <laughs> by comparison. Just a far cry from what we got in the Suchet series. But I have to say, it tickles me that Turnbull's Jap here is so... Poirot-like in his look, since let's never forget that in the 1985 television movie adaptation of this very novel of Lord Edward Dies, which stars Peter Ustinov as Poirot and Faye Dunaway as Jane Wilkinson, it is called 13 at Dinner. They went by the U.S. title for this adaptation. In that television film, the role of Jap is played by, wait for it, David Suchet. I just thought that was interesting. Suchet definitely looks like much more of a Poirot than an Inspector Jap. But I think the most egregious departure from canon that this movie makes has nothing to do with appearance. And I'm going to quote my good friend Mark Aldridge, as I so often do, from his book Agatha Christie on screen, because he always puts these things so very well. It appears that Trevor's Poirot is not Belgian, but French, something that had also been alluded to in the original alibi play, but was now in danger of becoming his popularly accepted nationality. Picture Goer Weekly flagged up these differences in a brief piece by its editor, S. Rossiter Shepard, under the headline, Bad Casting, which highlights that such changes did not go unnoticed. And now Mark quotes from that piece. A number of readers have written me complaining that although Mr. Trevor's acting in the part leaves nothing to be desired, he is emphatically nothing like Poirot as described in Mrs. Christie's novels. I am a great Poirot fan, and the moment I heard that Trevor was going to impersonate him on the films, I realized that it was bad casting. The detective is described by the authoress as an elderly man with an egg-shaped head and bristling mustache. Austin Trevor is a very good-looking young man and clean-shaven into the bargain. By a coincidence, I happened to run into him in the street this week, and I put the matter to him. Trevor admitted that he was unlike Mrs. Christie's conception of Hercule, but blamed the powers that be for giving him the part. He thinks it is because some years ago he happened to play a Frenchman in a picture. So even though this article is bemoaning the fact that Trevor Austin doesn't look like Christie's Poirot, it's repeating the fallacy about Poirot being a Frenchman, or at least not being very careful about the distinction to be made when it comes to Poirot that he is in fact from Belgium and not France. That piece was actually in reference to Alibi, the first Trevor Austin film, but all of this pertains to Austin's turn as Poirot in Lord Edward Dies, because we see him in this very movie being called a Frenchman to his face without any sort of correction. Mr. Poirot, I believe. At your service, Lady Edward. Oh, you Frenchmen are so cute. I just love your Parisian manners. And our English policeman, I hope. Oh, yes. My friend Captain Hastings. How do you do? How do you do? 
the lady in that clip, by the way, is Lady Edgware, a.k.a. Jane Wilkinson, although I don't believe she's ever actually called Jane Wilkinson in the film, just Lady Edgware. I suppose if we were to give the film the benefit of the doubt, we could say Poirot was simply being polite here by not correcting her. But as Mark points out, given the extent to which his apparent French nationality is mentioned in secondary material, it seems likely that this is a deliberate intention on the part of the filmmakers. It also proves that Christie herself wasn't involved in these Trevor Austin films, because she obviously would have nipped that nonsense in the bud right quick. So now for some thoughts I had that I would love to share with you as I was watching this film. The actor Richard Cooper plays Hastings, and he plays him so over the top. He's such a buffoon. He's choking on tea. He's repeating things that Poirot says. He's bumping into things as he walks. It's all very, very ridiculous. But I will say that Jane Carr as Lady Edgware is really great. She's made to be an American, which really works because she's brash and kind of outrageous. And yet she has that charisma that Jane Wilkinson needs to be a convincing character. I think she really sells the character of Jane Wilkinson slash Lady Edgware. Oh, hello. Bonjour, madame. Uh, this is Mr. Markson, everybody. How do you do? Now, Mr. Markson, this is Mr. Yap. Jeff. Oh, Jeff, pardon me. Who seems quite positive that I went out last night and killed my husband. She's also wearing these fantastic wide-legged pants in one scene, or trousers, I suppose I should say. It was a great costume. And I just have to shout out the fact that she appears as Carlotta Adams in the opening scene. And there's some tricky camera work done here, especially for 1934. Since she's in this scene as two different people, she's both Carlotta and Lady Edgware. Uh, and it was done very convincingly. That is the only complimentary thing I can say about the camera work <laughs> done in this movie, which is otherwise pretty static uh, and boring. <laughs> but let's just keep in mind, it was 1934. Actually, there was also a nice horse racing sequence, which added a little burst of excitement to the proceedings, a much needed burst of excitement. <laughs> this movie definitely flags, especially in its second half. I think it opens quite well with Carlotta Adams doing her impersonation and Lady Edgware approaching Poirot. There's a lot of sparkle to the opening scene, but that sparkle diminishes considerably as the film goes on. This is also one of those cases of an early film that has a noticeable lack of a soundtrack or score. I found it to be awkward, if not painful. There were just so many moments where I was desperate for just a little bit of music, even just incidental music, to cover over the sounds of bodies in motion and what have you. These early movies really do feel like filmed plays, for better and for worse. <laughs> and then this is by far my biggest criticism. The film ends so abruptly. It really hurtles toward its conclusion. I, while I was watching this on YouTube, thought that the upload must not have captured the whole film because it couldn't possibly be over as quickly as it was. Lady Edgware is listening. She's eavesdropping on Poirot laying out the solution to the crime, which obviously incriminates her because she is the murderer. <laughs> and she rushes in with the same corn knife she used to kill her third and final victim. And she tries to stab Poirot. She tries to kill him. And there are literally seconds left following this sequence of events. And I was thinking to myself, well, yeah, clearly this is just going to get cut off because it can't possibly end. And I am just going to play you the final moments of this movie. You mean to tell me that you think that she committed all these murders? That she... I do not think, my friend. I know she did. Every one of them. Devilish cunning. Yes, the cunning of a monomaniac. 
and the cruelty and vindictiveness of a self-centered woman. You remember what I said to you, Hastings, the first time I met her? I said... Get out! No, no, madame. Three murders are quite enough. Alice's corn knife, I thought so. That was the weapon, Jacques. Well, you needn't be so rough. You might at least consider my appearance. Appearances, my dear lady, are definitely against you. I can't imagine what came unstuck. Everything was so carefully planned. Madame, you tried to pull the wool over the eyes of Hercule Poirot. And I'm hanged if we can have that. Under the circumstances, that's a very tactless remark. So, yeah, pretty rushed. <laughs> There's just no question this film was a bit of a rush job. Here is what Mark Aldrich had to say about it in his second book, Agatha Christie's Poirot, The Greatest Detective in the World. I think this really helps put the movie in context, actually. It's a bit of a shock that a story that so heavily focuses on appearances and related subterfuge should be told in such a bizarrely low-key manner on screen. Crucial events, such as the dinner party where a murder suspect has the seemingly perfect alibi, are discussed in conversation rather than being shown, which makes the film feel like a radio production being played out on screen. It's certainly a story told out of apparent necessity, whether driven by finances or quotas, rather than any passion for the mystery, nor even any particular interest in the clever mechanics of this sophisticated tale. Not unreasonably, Trevor's Poirot seems a little bored by the proceedings, while Richard Cooper's Hastings makes great play of the comedy silly-ass role so common in films of the period. Inspector Jap also returns, but is this time played by a blustering John Turnbull. Director Henry Edwards makes no real effort to inject the proceedings with any tension, and although the story is largely unaltered from the novel, it's an unexciting screen treatment. No doubt this was due in part to the low budget, rushed production, and short running time of approximately 75 minutes. All typical elements of the quota quickie. Fair enough, and yet I'd like to end on a positive note, since I did enjoy watching this film very much. A listener wrote into me recently about having also watched the film on YouTube. And while I agreed with everything Mark said in his book, I also agreed with everything this listener had to say. Here's what he wrote. I was surprised at how faithful it was. I remember seeing an adaption of The Great Gatsby in black and white and with mid-Atlantic accents where everyone gets married and lived happily ever after at the end. The demand for movies was so great in the 1930s and 1940s that screenwriters took huge liberties as they were expected to churn out several scripts a week. They even included the torn page of the letter, which was tricky to portray on film and did it well. And this listener is right about that. The torn letter clue is the very best clue, I think, in Lord Edgeware Dies. It's actually one of my favorite clues in all of Christie, in the entire oeuvre. And even though we don't get to see the words on this torn page, its margin is visible to us, and the purpose of the tear is very clearly explained. So I appreciated that. And this listener is making reference to the same phenomenon that Mark did, the quota quickie. The idea that these studios just had to churn out a ton of movies, and they did so in a quick and workmanlike way. It cannot be denied that there are many workmanlike aspects <laughs> to this adaptation of Lord Edgeware Dies, but I still think there's a lot to celebrate about it. And now that we can all see it so easily on YouTube, I encourage you to take a look. It's just a little over an hour of your time, and I don't think you'll be sorry. All right, let's move on to the second adaptation that Catherine and I missed. This is an adaptation of A Murder is Announced. Our sixth highest title, six of 66, podcast favorite, A Murder is Announced, one of my very favorite Christie's. 
So I just had a chance to talk about the very first screen performance of Poirot by Trevor Austin. And now I am going to talk about the very first screen performance of Miss Marple. It is so egregious that Catherine and I failed to mention this adaptation when we covered A Murder is Announced. But all the way back in 1956, the singer and actor Gracie Fields played Miss Marple in a live televised adaptation of A Murder is Announced, which aired during the holiday period, no less, on December 30th, New Year's Eve Eve of 1956. This was an episode within the NBC anthology series Goodyear Playhouse, which was sponsored by Goodyear, the tire company. The acts of the episode are broken up by very long tire ads. (laughs) So like Lord Edgeware dies, this is a very zippy adaptation. It's actually under an hour. (laughs) Unfortunately, this adaptation is much harder to come by. It's the only one of the four adaptations I will be discussing in this episode that is not available for free on YouTube. A listener was kind enough to send this adaptation to me, but perhaps it will become more widely available in years to come. And I really hope it does because it is a fascinating artifact. So let's just talk about the cast for a second, because beyond Gracie Fields, We have quite a legend playing Letitia Blacklock. That would be Miss Daisy herself, Jessica Tandy. And then playing Letitia's young cousin, Patrick Simmons. We have none other than an extremely young Roger Moore. That's right. James Bond is in this adaptation. Uh, Roger Moore really doesn't have much to do here, but this is actually a great role for Jessica Tandy. She's perfect as Letty Blacklock. Jessica Tandy strikes me as one of those actors like Maggie Smith and Angela Lansbury, who was aged prematurely by the roles that she took on. Like, I feel like Jessica Tandy was never young. (laughs) Anyway, young or not, she is truly iconic. She very famously played Blanche Dubois opposite Marlon Brando in the stage adaptation of A Streetcar Named Desire uh, just eight years before this performance. That was in 1948, and that was before the film adaptation of A Streetcar Named Desire. She obviously lost the role in the film to Vivian Lee, who wasn't too shabby herself. Uh, But I really could see Jessica Tandy playing the heck out of Blanche Dubois. That performance is almost time travel worthy, I think, right? Go back in time to 1948, see Jessica Tandy as Blanche. And then, of course, a lot of Jessica Tandy's noted film work came later in her career. Not just Driving Miss Daisy, but Cocoon. I was a big fan of Cocoon when I was a kid, and its sequel. And Batteries Not Included. I definitely remember seeing that in the theater. <laughs> anyway, I thought she was great in this. She's a perfect Letty. Betty, you are frightened. <laughs> Dora, you will never change. You have the same wide imagination now as you had as a schoolgirl. And I thought the adaptation was pretty good, too. With such a quick runtime, we, of course, have lots of simplification that has to happen. But I was impressed with what this adaptation managed to retain. The episode opens with a suspicious looking man. That would be Rudy Shares putting the titular advertisement in the newspaper. And then we get credits where Agatha Christie's name is prominently displayed. And then an immediate segue into the action on the night in question at Letty's house. Letty is there, of course, along with her companion, Dora and Patrick. Uh, Mitzi the cook is our comic relief, just as she is in the book. 
Then there's a Colonel Harrison, who is the Colonel Easterbrook of the novel. And good old Hinchcliffe and Murgatroyd, they are every bit the coded lesbian couple in this adaptation that they are in the novel. If anything, it almost seemed more obvious to me that they were a lesbian couple in this adaptation. And I found that interesting. I also really appreciated what Mark Aldridge had to say about this. I'm quoting again from Agatha Christie on screen. The story effectively retains the key plot points of the novel and showcases some of its most fondly remembered characters, such as the spinsters Hinchcliffe and Murgatroyd, played by Pat Nye and Josephine Brown, respectively, who are clearly coded as lesbians to audience members who are astutely observing the relationships between characters or who recognize them as a stereotype. Such a relationship was already implicit in the novel, but the sparring between the two actresses makes the affectionate but resigned conversations between them more akin to an old married couple than two friends. In a departure from the novel, it is Hinchcliffe who becomes the final victim of the murderer, leaving the more naive Murgatroyd to fend for herself in the aftermath. The actress's performances help to shore up the relatively thin on-screen characterization in an adaptation that necessarily has to concentrate on plot and atmosphere above all else. I think that's a very fair assessment. You, everyone! I can't get Murgatroyd to come into a room like any normal human being I've been trying for years. How are you, Colonel? I just said to him, let's pop around to Shendon House and find out if Letitia's hens are laying any better than ours. Nonsense, Murgatroyd. The hens have nothing to do with our being here, and Letty knows that jolly well. We do have, of course, a lot of missing characters. Patrick's sister, Julia Simmons, Colonel Easterbrook's wife, Laura, Philippa Hames, Edmund Swetnam and his mother, Vicar Harmon and his wife, Bunch who a few of you have been writing to me about recently. I'll have more to say about Bunch Harmon when I cover our final Miss Marple short story in my very next episode. The absence of these characters means we have none of the Pip and Emma business that we get in the text, and perhaps that's for the best. <laughs> I did not miss the Pip and Emma intrigue. This was live television, and you can tell because there are a few flubs. One time from Jessica Tandy herself. Oh, don't let them. That's this silly advertisement. Spoil our party. But the flubbing was actually most notable to me in the scene where Inspector Craddock interviews Letty and Dora for the first time. It seems pretty certain that he did shoot deliberately at you, Miss Blacklock. The bullets are in line with everywhere you were, you were standing. But why, Inspector? Gracie Fields comes in as Miss Marple about 13 minutes into the episode, which is much too late given how short the episode is. She's actually billed as a special guest star, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me since this is an anthology series. Isn't everyone a special guest star? There are no regulars, right? Anyway, no disrespect to Gracie Fields, but I don't know what was going on with her accent. It's vaguely Scottish. That's this Rudy Sher's inspector. He was not an admirable character. I never liked him very much. We hardly spoke. But I do remember once he told me he'd been an orderly in a Swiss clinic, but he never mentioned anything about a hotel in Montreux. Probably told his many girlfriends other stories. It's an odd choice, for sure. I do think, like the 1934 adaptation of Lord Edgera Dies, and like so many televised episodes from this period, it very much feels like a filmed play. And yet the mystery is all there. At just under 11 minutes, Dora calls Letty Lottie 
for the first time. And she says Lottie again about halfway through the show. And this time it's in front of Miss Marple. And the way that Miss Marple looks at Letty slash Lottie at the end of this scene is very suggestive, especially if we already know the solution. So I really love the way they slipped that clue in. It's such a brilliant written clue in Christie's text, but it translates beautifully for the screen. I have to say, I really enjoyed myself watching this adaptation, which is why I was interested to read that the episode was not well-received by contemporary reviewers. I'm getting this from Mark Aldridge, of course. I'm just going to be quoting Mark a whole bunch in this episode. But here's what he wrote about that. The reviewer in the New York Times said that the question was not who done it, why? Asking why, for example, did Jessica Tandy and Gracie Fields ever get involved in such inferior melodrama? Further, the reviewer accused the production of using a series of stock characters and situations before declaring that it was murder from beginning to end. If there were ever plans for more appearances of Fields in the role, then such a response seems to have scuppered them. Great use of the word scuppered there, Mark. I can't say that this episode left me clamoring for more Gracie Fields as Miss Marple, but I'm glad that I was finally able to watch this adaptation and right the wrong of not having given this episode of Goodyear Playhouse its proper due. Hooray for the first screen appearance of Miss Marple. Don't Touch That Dial. We'll be back in a moment with the rest of our episode. We just wanted to take a moment to ask you, our dear listeners, for a favor. If you haven't already done so, we would very much appreciate it. If you take a moment to, you know, give us a rating or review wherever you're listening to this podcast. It really helps the podcast out because ratings and reviews make it much easier for other Christy fans, such as yourselves, to find our podcast. And the more ratings and reviews we get, the more people we can reach. It should take you a matter of seconds and lucky you we're going to provide you with those seconds right now so go to it thank you so much and now back to our regularly scheduled programming All right, let's move on now to The Red Signal. This is a short story of Christie's, not a full-length novel. And when it comes to the episode Catherine and I put out regarding this early short story, there was so very much that we missed. This episode aired back in 2019. And what can I say? We just weren't as up on our research at that point in the podcast. Because not only are there two screen adaptations of this short story that we failed to mention. There's also an earlier version of the short story itself that we missed. And I'd like to speak about that early version now before I move on to those adaptations, because I think it's really interesting to see how this story evolved. So The Red Signal was first published in June 1924 in the Grand Magazine, which makes it an early short story of Christie's. But it's even earlier than that, as I learned from my good friend, Dr. John Curran in Agatha Christie's Secret Notebooks. There was an earlier version of this story called The Man Who Knew. And here's what John has to say about this earlier story. The Man Who Knew is very short, less than 2,000 words, and the typescript is undated. The only guidance we have for a possible date of composition is the reference in the first paragraph to No Man's Land, suggesting that the First World War is over. 
In all probability, its composition predates the publication of The Mysterious Affair at Styles, and this makes its very existence surprising. Very few short story manuscripts or typescripts, even from later in Christie's career, have survived, so one from the very start of her writing life is remarkable. John then goes on to reprint this earlier version in full in his book. This is one of the many reasons John's books are such a treat. He gives us access to Christie stories that have never been published anywhere else. I'm going to give you a quick rundown now of what happens in both versions of this story, just a little primer to help frame the conversation. So we have a man, he's named Derek in the early version, Dermot in the later version. I'm going to go ahead and use all the character names from the later version to avoid confusion. Dermot attends a dinner party hosted by his best friend, Jack Trent, and Jack's wife, Claire. These social occasions are usually a bit fraught for Dermot, since he happens to be in love with Claire, but he's never acted on that love, and he never will. On this evening, however, there's something else wrong, a sense of peril and danger that overwhelms Dermot. He can feel it on an instinctual level. He dismisses it, as people do, but when the party is over and he goes home, something is still nagging at him, so he makes a thorough search of his flat, finding, to his shock and horror, a gun concealed in a dresser drawer in his bedroom. He does not own this gun, he has never seen it before, and his horror increases considerably when he discovers that his psychiatrist uncle, Sir Allington West, who has left his fortune to him, has been shot. Dermot intuits that this gun was the one used to shoot his uncle, someone has planted this gun on him, and he's being framed. But why? We get our answer very quickly <laughs> in this short story when Dermot returns to the Trent's home and discovers that Jack Trent is a complete and utter maniac who knew about Dermot's feelings for Claire. Sir Ellington West, the psychiatrist, was trying to help Jack. He wanted to bring him to a sanatorium, but Jack became convinced that they were all trying to get rid of him so that Dermot and Claire could live happily ever after, because it's made clear that Claire loves Dermot back. This is very much a mutual feeling. In the end, a Scotland Yard detective, who the resourceful Dermot tipped off, hears Jack's gibbering confession. And in the early version, in The Man Who Knew, Jack just conveniently drops dead, whereas in The Red Signal, Jack shoots himself, which is a much more convincing ending. So that is the bare bones plot, which isn't very interesting. Plot wise, this isn't a particularly interesting story. But what is interesting is what Christie did to spiff up the man who knew and turn it into the red signal because it shows her early in her career honing her skills as a mystery writer and acquiring skills she would put to much better use in better plots in the years to come. So in the later version, in The Red Signal, Sir Allington West is a much bigger character. He actually appears at the dinner party at the Trent's. And after this party, Sir Allington has an argument with his nephew Dermot, and Christie uses this argument for purposes of a misdirection that is entirely absent from the early version of the story. We are led to believe, for the majority of The Red Signal, that Claire Trent is the one who's crazy, as opposed to her husband Jack. So in the later version, the presence of Sir Allington West at the dinner party is put down to the fact that he's observing someone to see if they require his professional treatment. And from the start, Dermot thinks that Claire is the one under observation. And unless we're extremely astute, we as readers fall prey to that assumption as well. 
So when Sir Allington talks to his nephew Dermot after the dinner party about how Dermot can't act on his feelings for Claire, Dermot thinks his uncle is saying this since he's about to lock Claire up, that they can't have a relationship since Claire is crazy and she's about to be committed. But it turns out that what Sir Allington actually means is that if Jack Trent is declared insane, then his wife can never divorce him. This is Christie using the law to her advantage, which she would do many times later in her career. And it's a point that one of you listeners wrote to me about after listening to our original Red Signal episode. Here's what this listener had to say. I do have one minor correction, more of an addition slash clarification on a short story you covered about a million years ago, and it's been bugging me ever since. And as you were nearing the end of the Christie canon and have been doing some housekeeping, as you call it, I thought now is the time to write in. In the Red Signal, when you're talking about the motivations of the alienist uncle in warning Dermot away from Claire, and Claire's distress over Dermot's feelings for her, you describe it as being merely concerned from the uncle over Dermot's getting mixed up in a love affair with a woman whose husband is insane. It's actually a little more practical than that. Under British law at the time, someone who was married to a person who has been declared insane couldn't legally divorce them. So Sir Allington West is warning Dermot away and emphasizing the tragedy of the situation because once he declares Jack insane, Claire is tied to him for life with no legal recourse. And regardless of any feelings she has for Dermot, they can never be together. And now this listener goes on and makes a connection between the Red Signal and Three Act Tragedy. So fast forward 30 seconds if you haven't yet read Three Act Tragedy. This is also the point that the murder in three-act tragedy turns on, as Sir Charles can't divorce his mentally incompetent wife to marry Egg. Her death is his only way out of the marriage. This is actually one of my favorite random plot points that crops up in literature fairly often. It's also the issue in Jane Eyre, because it gives a greater sense to the desperation of the situation. When you can't legally end a marriage and extramarital affairs are frowned upon, regardless of the situation, it's a constraint that is particular to older books, but puts some limits and twists on the plot that are interesting to find a way out of, usually with murder and or deception, which then create their own interest. Thank you for that clarification, listener. I love connecting Christy to Jane Eyre whenever possible. <laughs> and I think once this misdirection has been added to the story, the ending becomes so much more surprising and satisfying when it turns out that Jack is the crazy one, not Claire. Because not only are we made not to trust Claire, we're also made to trust Jack. In the original version of the story, in The Man Who Knew, Dermot simply shows up to Jack's house and then we find out that Jack is crazy. There's no rug pulled out from under us feeling, which was an effect that Christie would grow very adept at pulling off. It basically became her signature move. Also, in the later version, in The Red Signal, Christie injected a seance into the first part of the story. And while the supernatural isn't the total red herring it would often be in her novels, Dermot's instinct about danger is all too correct, as it turns out. The seance business distracts and obfuscates, I would say, the way that such supernatural proceedings would go on to do in future novels. The Red Signal would actually go on to be collected in The Hound of Death, which is Christie's most spooky and supernatural collection of short stories. Many of the stories in The Hound of Death are supernatural, and those elements are not red herrings whatsoever. Here, I think we can see her doing a little bit of a hybrid between a supernatural story and a mystery in which the supernatural is window dressing. She's doing a little bit of both, and I find that interesting. Also, I should note that the phrase, the red signal, is a direct reference to this sort of premonition of danger 
that Dermot has. And that phrase gets repeated in curtain and used in much the same way. There is another element injected into the later version of this story, which Christie would go on to use again and again. In the early version, Dermot simply goes to Jack's house with the gun once he's figured out what's happened. But in the later version, the police arrive at Dermot's flat and he has to pretend to be his own servant to effect an escape out of his flat, at which point he goes to see Jack. Masquerading as a servant would, of course, be a well that Christie would go to again and again, perhaps most memorably in a few of her 1930s novels. And then one final point I want to make before I move on to the two adaptations we have for this story. The name Dermot West is a significant one in the Christie verse for two reasons. Dermot would go on to be used as the name for the husband character in Unfinished Portrait by Mary Westmacott, which is almost more autobiographical than Christie's autobiography. (laughs) So Dermot is the fictional counterpart to Archie Christie. Also, Nathaniel West was one of the pen names Christie toyed with using when she was younger and still considering the use of a pen name. I believe West was an old family name of hers, and she would, of course, go on to use the name for the character of Raymond West. I like to imagine this Dermot West as a slightly louche, unsavory cousin of dear Raymond's, which, of course, makes him a relative of our dear Miss Marple as well. (laughs) All right, so let's talk about these adaptations, both of which Catherine and I failed to mention in our episode about The Red Signal. The first one was broadcast in the U.S. as a 30-minute episode on the 22nd of January, 1952, as part of the anthology series Suspense, which ran from 1949 to 1954 on CBS. I'm going to quote yet again from Mark Aldridge in Agatha Christie on screen. For this television performance, five of the eight actors were British-born, and the English setting was retained. The key character of Dermot was played by London-born actor Tom Helmore, who would later be best known for the role of Gavin Elster, the man who hires James Stewart's character Scotty to investigate his wife in Alfred Hitchcock's Vertigo. I love that. Thank you for that factoid, Mark. Continuing on... The performance opens with strained organ music, which permeates and overwhelms much of the production, a standard fixture of the program's radio incarnation, which had not adapted the red signal, and the pained cries of the medium who will be conducting the seance. So the scene is immediately set for a somewhat overwrought drama lacking in subtlety. One of my big takeaways from watching this episode was that the score was so overactive It was the counterpoint to Lord Edgeware Dies. I was desperate for more music when I was watching Lord Edgeware Dies. And as I was watching this episode, I was like, please, at the very least, turn the music down. I'm just going to play the opening here because it really does have to be heard to be believed. And now, Autolite presents Suspense.
Are you ready to start the seance now, Mrs. Catamore? I love that this TV series is showing its roots in radio by way of its scoring. You can really hear that. It's really interesting. By the way, this episode is 30 minutes with commercials. It actually only runs for 22 minutes. So we fly through this story. But as with Lord Edgeware dies and a murder is announced, I found myself enjoying the feverish pace, especially since the core elements of the Red Signal of the later version of this story really are preserved, including the use of these supernatural seance as a quasi red herring. There's also a fun action sequence of Dermot escaping from the police, which I appreciated because there's this little detail in Christie's text when Dermot is escaping out of his flat. He shimmies down a small wire lift used by tradesmen, which ran up and down on its steel cable. So that means he's actually sliding down a steel cable. And Christie writes that it cut into his hands, making them bleed. But he went on desperately. I actually winced when I read that because I can just imagine how bad that would be, the steel cable cutting into the palms of your hands. And even though this detail wasn't preserved in this adaptation, I appreciated that they retained the adventurous, adrenalized spirit of Dermot's escape. So that was great. The episode fare is a little worse when it's time for Jack Trent to lose his mind, however. So it's you who is the sick one. And it was you who shot him. Yes, I killed him. Because he and Claire were trying to put me away. I waited outside his house while you and he were talking. Then after you left, I, I went inside and killed him. Then, then I drove to your flat. And since you were walking, I, I had plenty of time to get there and plant the gun. him, don't you? That's why you and Alex wanted to put me away. But I've never been untrue to you, Jack. And you love her, don't you? Suppose I did. I've never tried to take her away from you. Well, you never will. All in all, I really enjoyed this, and I encourage you all to check it out on YouTube. If you put the red signal into your search field on YouTube, you should be able to find both the 1952 adaptation and our next offering, which is the 1982 adaptation of The Red Signal. So this was one of the 10 episodes comprising the Agatha Christie Hour. Another anthology series, though a much later one, airing on television in the UK in 1982. It was produced by Thames Television. The Red Signal was the eighth episode of 10, and it aired on the 2nd of November, 1982. This is a much more traditional adaptation of an Agatha Christie story. It takes its time. It's 50 minutes long, and it is adapting a short story, so it really does not miss a single thing. It's got proper sets, adequate camera work. And while this is mainly due to the fact that by 1982, the technical capabilities of a televised production had evolved significantly from the 1950s, I think it also reflects the care and to some extent the paranoia that anyone who dared adapt Agatha Christie after her death brought to the venture. That paranoia was due to the fact that they were risking the wrath of the estate. And by the estate, I basically mean Rosalind Hicks, <laughs> Agatha Christie's only daughter, who was very much the gatekeeper at this point of all Christie's texts. But I don't want to minimize what Rosalind did for the Christie estate, because those were different times, and Christie was by no means afforded the respect that she is today, or that she tends to be afforded today. 
I think Rosalind played an important role, but it's just so obvious to me what a different time we're in based on this careful production, as opposed to the fast and loose vibe of those television adaptations in the 50s, and even to a certain extent of the 1934 film adaptation of Lord Edgeware Dies. I think watching all those early adaptations together gave me an appreciation for the verve of those rather play-like adaptations for those quota quickies. We could call them slapdash, but we could also call them energetic and spirited and fun. I think there's something to be said for them, even just by way of contrast. And that doesn't mean we can't appreciate a more staid and careful adaptation like this one. First of all, it stars Joanna David as Claire Trent. Let's never forget that Joanna David played the unnamed narrator in an adaptation of Rebecca, Daphne du Maurier's Rebecca, just three years earlier in 1979, opposite Jeremy Brett, Sherlock Holmes himself. Let's also never forget that Joanna David's own daughter, Amelia Fox, played the same role in the 1990s adaptation of Rebecca, opposite Charles Dance. I hold that that 90s version is the best or at least the most faithful adaptation. Sorry, Hitchcock. By the way, if you want more of my and Catherine's thoughts on Rebecca the Text and four of its adaptations, I have two Patreon episodes for you to listen to over at www.patreon.com slash allaboutagatha. Joanna David also appeared in the Joan Hickson 450 from Paddington as Emma Crackenthorpe, and she guest starred in Morse, Maygray, Foyle's War, the Jeremy Brett Sherlock Holmes series. Uh, she's Mrs. Gardner in the Jennifer Eel, Colin Firth, Pride and Prejudice. She's just one of those, oh, that person character actors who you've seen a million times in a million things. So I loved seeing her here. I also appreciated that this adaptation took the misdirection an extra step. When Claire and Jack are interacting, just the two of them, before the party that they host, it really seems like Claire is the crazy one from the get-go. I've told you before not to play with knives. It could cut you. Jack, I found it. And I must make sure that you don't find it again. Well, it'll be safe in there. Shall we go down? Violet's already here. This adaptation includes an extra dinner guest named Violet Eversley, who is in Christie's text. She's a bit of a bore and a chatterer. She's much more entertaining in the adaptation, actually, than she is in the written story. She's more of a presence here. But much of her dialogue and Sir Allington's dialogue is lifted directly from the text. Again, super faithful, super respectful adaptation here. This adaptation also makes a very subtle and smart alteration in that when Dermot is talking about a previous moment in which he felt the red signal, he talks about having been attacked in a tent when he was in Mesopotamia. That's straight from the text, but Dermot also mentions that Jack was there with him, and they never really did figure out who had attacked Dermot in this tent. As written in the text, Dermot does find out who attacked him afterward, and it has nothing to do with Jack, but it's a nice little extra moment thrown in there that I appreciated as someone who had just read the story and was looking for all of the ways in which an astute viewer might be able to figure out that Jack is the villain. So that was a nice touch. And when it comes time for Jack's crazy scene, it goes much better here than in the 50s version. She's afraid of me, you see. Poor, beautiful Claire. 
been afraid of me for a long time. That's why she sent for your uncle, that famous helper of... What is it Violet calls them? Loonies? Well, he won't be helping them anymore. Look at it, Dermot. Did you ever see such a beautiful knife? She always knows when I'm thinking of it. I'm saving it for her. Interestingly, Jack is killed by a knife, not a gun. And while I was watching this, I thought to myself, oh, wow, that's a rare departure from the text. But Christy does, in fact, make mention of a long, sharp knife that Jack often has on his mind. And Claire is very much aware of this knife that Jack thinks about. She's quite terrified by it. So the creative team here made the choice to run with the knife theme in this version. And it works. This is a very smart adaptation, and I think one of the better episodes within the Agatha Christie hour. I'm going to go ahead and give Joanna David a lot of the credit for that. I didn't really expect to have a through line for this episode, but I just want to emphasize how much I appreciated the vivacity of those early adaptations. I don't think we watch them that often as Christie fans. Some of them are quite hard to come by, but thank goodness for YouTube and other streaming platforms, because I think it's never been easier to watch many of these early adaptations, and I hope that more of them become available. They're an important part of the adaptational landscape of Agatha Christie, both in terms of where they would lead us later in the 20th century to David Suchet and Joan Hickson and beyond, but also in and of themselves as artistic works and cultural artifacts. So give them a look if you haven't already, and let me know if there are more adaptations that I am missing, because there is always more when it comes to Agatha Christie. There's always going to be something that I'm missing, and thank goodness for that. Well, that was my rundown of things that Catherine and I missed the first time around when we were discussing various Christie texts. A grab bag of an episode, a bit of a motley assortment. For my next episode, I will be covering the final Miss Marvel short story to be covered on this podcast, Sanctuary by Agatha Christie. If you would like more content, head on over to www.patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N forward slash all about Agatha, or just click the link in the notes to this episode. You can email me at allaboutthedame at gmail.com. You can find the podcast on Twitter at allaboutthedame and on Instagram at allaboutagatha. And I encourage you to leave a rating and or a review wherever you're listening to this podcast. It really helps me out. It's always so appreciated. And I'll see you next time. Bye. Mm -hmm.